0: Welcome to The Blind Side, news and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosin, And we have reached
1: the grand old age of episode 90, so thank you for being a part of The Blind Side podcast today, really appreciate it. We do have quite a few listener comments on various issues that I've let accumulate over the last week or two, and I'm going to let them accumulate just one more time because I have a long interview to feature today. And I thought about splitting the interview up into two episodes of the podcast, but then I thought it really does disrupt the flow. So the comments will keep. And if you have any comments on the WWDC keynote, on some of the issues we've been talking about recently, you're welcome to send them through. And I promise that next week we'll have a good old catch up and play at least a selection of some of the listener comments that we've received over the last few weeks. Now you can get your comments to me by dropping me an email, the blind side at mosen.org is the email. You can write something down in that email or you can produce an audio clip and attach it if you prefer. You may even have some comments on some of the things that my guest and I are talking about because some of the topics are a bit contentious, I suppose. You're also welcome to call the listener line and that number is 719-270-5114 in the United States. That number again, 719-270-5114. My guest on the podcast today is the golden voiced Neil Ewers, and it's a pleasure to talk to Neil. We talk about a wide range of things, including his interest in audio, some interesting issues to do with technology use in the blind community, the classic chestnut of what constitutes literacy. And a lovely story to end the podcast from Neil about death and dying. So a very wide-ranging discussion. I hope that you will enjoy the conversation with Neil as much as I enjoyed having it. Before we get on to that, though, a couple of things to tell you about. First, there is a new book from Mosin Consulting that came out in the last couple of weeks. And it's one of the titles that we've been most often requested to do. It could be one of the most useful titles you'll ever buy from Mosin Consulting. Google is a really powerful tool, and the internet is just jam-packed with information. So often, I see people on email lists writing in a really simple request that could be answered within seconds if they used Google effectively to get the answer. And so this book is called The Secret Source of Savvy Search, and it runs about two hours. It's a comprehensive look at the way Google search works in 2018. You'll learn all sorts of tips and tricks to narrow down your search results, to expand your search results, to restrict based on date ranges and all sorts of tricks. And the feedback that we've received on this book has been amazing. People really do appreciate having this tool that deals with working with Google. We also cover subjects like using Google voice search from your Chrome browser on a PC. If you would like to learn more, then you can head over to the Mosin consulting website just go to mosin.org that's m o s e n.org and choose the store link or you can go right there to mosin.org/savvysearch that's mosin.org/savvysearch the audiobook costs 35 american dollars and when you make that purchase you can download instantly and you get it in two formats you can download one or the other or you can download both if you prefer It comes in one big MP3 file, and it also comes in little MP3 files, a whole bunch of them. And you can just import that zip file, certainly into my favorite way of reading books, which is Voice Dream Reader in iOS. When you do that, you'll find that you can skip by section, and it really helps to review the material. If you think, now what was that command he was talking about there when you're sitting in front of Google? Then having a book that is organized by file means that you can bring up the file list even in file explorer in windows and choose the file that you want because all the files are clearly labeled and clearly tagged so you get both of those versions for 35 dollars and an instant download i'm confident it will save you a lot of time it will make you more efficient with google you will be google searching like a boss and like a ninja and you can get it right now by heading on over to mozen.org savvy search The other big news I wanted to tell you about was that if you've been listening to Mushroom FM for a while, because it started back in 2010, you will recall that a while ago we had a sister station called Mushroom Escape, which specialised in old-time radio drama and comedy. Sometimes going a bit beyond that, for example, in 2013 we had some incredible programming which relived the tragic events in Dallas on November the 22nd, 1963, and we played all sorts of radio recordings from that period on that day. And Mushroom Escape has now returned. So if you like good quality old-time radio drama and comedy, then tune in. There is a schedule. And the way it works is that there's four hours of OTR programming played every day. And that means that you have multiple chances to hear that four hours every day. There is a schedule. And the schedule is displayed in your time zone. So it makes it really easy for you to find out what is on when. There's a really cool feature on a Saturday, Saturday Night at the Movies, where you can hear a classic movie complete with audio description. So there's a lot of really good content. And it's not just US-based radio drama and comedy either. There's material from the UK. A lot of great stuff like The Goons and Round the Horne, of course, Hancock. They'll all make an appearance over time. And also things from Australia as well. So we're delighted to have this back for you. If you want to find out more, Mushroom Escape is in tune-in Radio now which makes it accessible on devices like the Amazon Echo and Sonos and many more. You can also go straight to its website. You can go to mushroomfm.com and choose the link for Mushroom Escape on the main menu there, or head straight there, mushroomfm.com slash escape. That's mushroomfm.com slash escape. It's being managed by Bruce Taves, who is taking great care, to make sure that the quality of what we put on the air is really good you know there's a lot of variation in terms of audio quality with this stuff so i'm sure you will enjoy it mushroom escape it is back right now
0: it's time to hear from this week's featured guest on the blind side
1: Many people are familiar with the golden voice of Neil Ewers over the years. In a variety of capacities, we know Neil, in terms of an accessibility evangelist, in terms of audio, music. He's kind of been into a lot of different things. And so it's great to have Neil on the podcast to have a wee chat about his life and his interests. Neil, welcome to The Blind Side. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you, sir. A wee chat we're having. Well, that sounds lovely. Yeah, wee chat. Yeah, yeah. You have the last name Ewers, and that intrigues me with all your interest in audio, because there's a pretty famous brand of um,
0: what reel-to-reel machine called Ewer, right? Are you, you, any, any connection there? No, it's spelled different. It's U H E R, and I used to have one. And everybody would say, oh, is it your?" I mean, did you make it? No, I didn't make it. <laughs> the other funny thing about Ewers is that when I came to graduate school at Wisconsin, It was before the days of login on the internet or register on the internet. There were these long lines, and I figured, why am I in the line? Oh, they have me under Y. They spelled it Y-O-U-R-S. That means I can name my children cordially, sincerely, truly, whatever.
1: (laughs) You must have always had an interest in audio then, I guess, right? Like a lot of us as blind kids, radio and audio played a big part
0: in our lives boy, I would lay down on the floor and put my ear to the door when I was supposed to be in bed just to listen to the Lone Ranger. And one night I'm lying there and I hear this voice say, I see an ear under the door. Oops, I think I was busted. But I've always been interested in sound. I got my first recorder at age 11, and we got it from a guy who was really kind of, well, he told my dad he would sell it to him. When my dad got there, the guy had said, oh, I'll, I'll raise the price now." And I know my dad didn't have the money to to pay for it, and he knew he didn't either. So the the guy he was buying it from was playing shuffleboard. And my dad, knowing that I knew nothing about shuffleboard, but he could tell me something about it, said, tell you what, Neil will play you in shuffleboard, and if he wins, you give him the recorder. If he doesn't, I'll pay for it. I beat the guy in shuffleboard because my dad told me, okay, just listen to the sound of the puck as it moves, or whatever it's called. And I beat him in shuffleboard and won my first recorder, which was so convoluted that you had to rewind with your finger.
1: <laughs> what was that first recorder?
0: It was an Ampro, which is an Ampex-related thing. It was about the size of a small trunk, <laughs> took seven-inch reels, and that was my first foray into recording. And I thought, wow, isn't this cool? Don't I sound awful? Because people hate their voices when they first hear them. Because you hear yourself from the inside and outside, and then when other people listen to you, and when you listen to yourself back on recorders, you hear yourself totally from the outside, and you're not used to that. And I thought, do I really want this thing? (laughs) Sound has become my life, starting from then to, oh, I don't know, just buying lots of recorders, I started my recording company, Ravenswood Productions, and actually it was called Dolphin Recording Company. In 1979, dolphins being good with hearing, we thought, oh, well, that would be a good name. And that morphed into Ravenswood Productions, and I've just been going since then. Where does the name Ravenswood come from? My street. I happen to live on Ravenswood Road, which I thought, well, it's a pretty good name, so we'll just use it. I think the first time I came across you in any capacity
1: that I remember vividly was when I was setting up the ACB Radio Cafe, which is, I think, still around and is a stream that showcases the work of blind musicians. And you submitted quite a lot of instrumental stuff, very much in the style, I guess, that people like Dan Gibson have become famous for uh that's quite complex stuff to produce i would imagine
0: it's easier now back then i did it all on my kurzweil 2500 and i had to memorize all the menus of course because then i'm speak and you do layer things over top of each other and then i recorded at that point in time i was recording at the mini discs and i would go through and listen to my albums and I would say, okay, this this song is a little too loud for the rest of the album. So the only way you could do it is record it onto another recorder and then put it back on the master by re-recording it back on the master. No such thing as computers in those days. But it worked. Oh my goodness, there's the rooster, Jonathan. It's telling me I should drink water. I have a that, that's a good idea. <laughs> I have an alarm on my phone that is the sound of a rooster. And every time I'm doing something important, it happens to show up. Oh, well. Go away, rooster. One of the things that has always intrigued me about recording and sound in general was where people are in the stereo spectrum. And I remember I would walk into an auditorium that I was going to record something in, and I would listen to the sound, and I would think, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this so that it sounds exactly like it would sound if somebody was sitting on the third row I was not one to use 15 microphones. I would use two microphones and say, hi, if I can't make a good sound, people only have two ears. If I can't make a good sound with this, then I should go back and learn something. So I'd set up microphones, and then a thousand people would come in, and uh, oops, the echo was not the same now. I should have put them, I learned quite quickly to get pretty good at where to place microphones to really sound the way I wanted, people think they would sound if they were sitting on like the third or fourth row. And I I really enjoyed that puzzle. And uh, But then I also recorded a lot of nature stuff. And as you said, music. I love to go out in the woods and just record sounds and try to record them as well as I can. And I have various microphones. I use some binaural, some XY, some all over the place. And I have recorded a bunch of sounds I have on my website as well as my music that I can make CDs, custom CDs for people with streams or birds or oceans or crickets or whatever. So it's it's my way of relaxing and being out into the woods. And if I'm going to be there, why not record something? And that story
1: just goes to show what's possible when people have attention to detail and just a a knack for this sort of thing. I mean, it's amazing to me when I come into the office every morning that I have hundreds of times more power at my disposal than was used to record the Sgt. Pepper album, which was done in four tracks in 1967. I mean, a bit of ping-ponging from other tape machines, but in the end, what you ended up with was a four-track recording. So it goes to show, you know, people like George Martin, who really predated all of the technology that we have now, were able to do remarkable things because they just had the ear for it and and the imagination.
0: Yeah, I think the ear is a lot of it. I remember I used to like to listen to albums and try to figure out where the edits were. And you could often tell because back in the day when you were using recording tape, you actually had to cut the tape and then cut out a spot and tape it back together. That was really kind of frustrating, because you knew if you cut a little too short, you just cut off some of the sound. And that's precisely what happened in a lot of even very professional recordings. You would hear a sound, and then you would hear all of a sudden the echo die, just unnaturally, because they had cut the tape. Because the echo would have run into the next part that they wanted to re-record, and so they couldn't have that, and they would have to cut off the echo. And so I thought, okay, what other interesting things can you listen for? And I got started listening to TV and dramas and hearing things like, oh, the person just went outside, but funny, the bird started singing a little bit before he opened the door. I mean, what are the sort of things they don't think about quite? It's interesting that they probably do a lot to make sure the visual cues are good and i'm sure they do a lot with the audio too but man there there are some things that you can hear if you're listening correctly that just shouldn't happen like that example but yeah good ear is and i have been blessed with with a good ear and i've also been blessed so people say with a with a nice voice so i do a lot of narrations and public speaking and recording books for people and so it's it's been a fun life and that's only part of it because you're right Part of it is the technology, and it isn't just recording technology. It's all the stuff that I was talking to somebody yesterday who bought their computer about the same time I did, back in nineteen eighty-one, and I started out with an Apple II, and an Apple II GS, and an Apple Plus, and all those things that didn't have speech. So you typed, and you had to go into a different mode to save your record, your um, file. And if you were lucky and were in the right place, you heard the disk drives were to save things. If you didn't hear them, you knew that you were, well, I don't know what happened to that. I guess I'll have to do it over. So part of it is how to learn equipment, especially before there was voicing of a lot of equipment, like the iPhone and stuff that, that you can do on the iPhone with voiceover, but, and, and Android as well. But back then, what's the order of the buttons on the recorder? Is it play, stop, record, blah, blah, blah? That's the easy part. But what about, how do you know whether you're distorted? Or how do you know whether one track is working and one isn't? Or it, there was my Nagra 4S, which was a recorder that a lot of the movie industry used, had so many doggone buttons on it that it was just amazing. But you... You had in your head all the things about that recorder. And it strikes me that that's one of the very interesting differences between the way people who are blind learn something and the way people who are sighted do. If you can see, you can look at that recorder or look at most anything washing machine or TV or anything that you need to operate and you can see the whole thing. I only have two hands and I can feel. Two things at one time, and if I can remember what I have felt over here and over at the right hand side and the left hand side, then I can put it all together and make a picture. But I, I call it the bottom up versus top down. If you're if you're a visual person, you can see from the top down. You have this over great overview of things. People who are blind have to really figure out how to discover one thing at a time, memorize where that is, what it does, and then you, after after you get to about, I remember when I was doing my, my Kurzweil menus, I'd, I'd memorize the menus and memorize what was here and what was there, and my wife would read them off to me and I'd sort of memorize them. And, and then you'd get to the last or the next to the last one and it would be totally different and you'd say to yourself, oh, if I knew that while I was learning the first bunch, I would have thought very differently about the first bunch because that, that last thing just sort of changed what I can do with the first bunch. So it's that sort of learning and relearning and thinking and getting it all in your head. That's a real, it's actually a blessing. My dad said to me once when I couldn't do something or I lost something and something, he said, Neil, life is a puzzle and you just put the pieces together. And that sort of stuck with me and that's what you do. You might get to the end piece and discover all the rest of them are in wrong and you go back and do it over again. But that was a very interesting lesson to learn. A couple of points there. I think the first one is
1: that it's harder now to do that memorization because we used to have a point of reference with all this technology because the buttons were all physical and analog. And so you could get to a sort of a zero point and count clicks or presses or whatever you have to do. And now you have to be quite careful about that because not all technology does it. And gosh, every time you buy a dishwasher or a washing machine or anything, you've got to be careful about that. The other thing is, I think our brains have changed with technology in the sense that we don't remember as many phone numbers anymore because we can just ask our personal assistant to dial them for us once they're in our contacts or or whatever. So our, our
0: expectations have changed a bit, I think, over the years. Do you think that's true? First of all, menus often wrap. Some do, some don't. And it's nice for sighted people. And it's, it's also nice to some extent for people who are blind. For example, I was working on an app the other day, a physical, a physical device, and we were going through the alphabet. And I got to X, and I wanted to go back to A. Well, why would I want to go all the way up through the alphabet? Why would I not want to wrap around to A? And so I can see that that is a trend. But boy, How do you know if you count, what I used to have to do was count clicks. Okay, I'm so far down in the menu, but wait, it's going to wrap. Now, is it where I left off the the next time I go into the menu? And each interface, just like recorders, but each interface is different. But the fact that a lot of them, well, some of them speak now, especially if you're using things like the iPhone, but there's still stuff I need to use, like my mixer sitting here on my desk, which has a zillion knobs on it. I have to remember what they do and I have to remember where they're set. As I said earlier, if I were sighted, I could come in and see exactly where they were, but I have to check them each time I want to do something. And yeah, it is um, it is it is a harder world in a sense to deal with. You can you can do a lot more with it than you used to, but it's it's sometimes a challenge to remember all that stuff. Sometimes I would have to turn off a recorder because I knew if I turned it off, all the menus get set back to the top. But, yeah, it's um it's 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 an interesting thought. To what extent
1: do you think the iPhone with appropriate accessories, you know, some sort of very good external mic that might be made for iPhone or something like that, can replace some of these higher-end digital recorders? Are we there yet if you just want to go and do a field interview?
0: Yeah, I think we are. I have a couple of microphones that work very nicely on the iPhone. And if I'm doing a one-track or two-track or mono or stereo recording, I can do that easily. And it sounds very nice. There are microphones I can plug directly in. There are devices that one can plug into one's recorder via USB and have as many mixing channels as one wants, and they have physical knobs, etc. Unfortunately, often they're control panels are not accessible, but that's, you know, yet another challenge. If you want to try to multi-track things on an iPhone, that gets a little harder. I have played with a couple, I don't remember even what now, it's been a long time ago, changing volumes, panning channels on the iPhone. If they have sliders that you can do that with, it's a breeze. Some of the apps that you do that with are more accessible than others, and if you can find one that is, then you're off and running. But yes, there are many different microphones that you can just plug into. In fact, I just bought a set of binaural headphone microphones from Sennheiser. And I recorded this wonderful thunderstorm where the thunder, just a couple of days ago, the thunder sounded for 20 minutes without stopping, just constantly in the background. And the rain and the birds were singing. And you just put them in your ears and plug it into the iPhone and off you go. Yeah, it's remarkable.
1: I just purchased a Blue Raspberry mic. And I've been really impressed with that just for mono recordings doing, say, one-on-one interviews. And I actually took it to CSUN with me. And I've had people emailing saying, what was that microphone that you used on those recordings? And that was just using ferrite recording directly into Wave uh, f- on the iPhone and then just editing it on the PC data. So for basic work like that, it's amazing what you can get done on the iPhone now. And with 256 gigs of storage available, you know,
0: you're know you not going to run out. No, and there's some really nice recording apps out there that are very accessible. I use something called Audio Memos, not to just plug the, the app, but one of the nice things about it is that I can set it up to link to my... IP address on my computer, so if I want to download something, I just turn the iPhone on, open the the record app, go to my computer, plunk in a website, and there are my files. No iTunes, no, no, nothing. It's it's really kind of nice.
1: Yeah, and there are recorders now that will export to iCloud Drive, and Dropbox, and yeah, so um, Ferrite and JustPress Record do that too. So you've got lots of options, which is nice because we used to have to ask. Is there an accessible option? And now the question, certainly in iOS, is, well, what's the accessible option that best meets my needs? And that's a wonderful position to be in. Did you learn about your audio just by experimentation? Are you completely self-taught or have you done some sort of courses in audio that taught you a lot of the information you now have?
0: I did most of it self-teaching. Along the way, I talked to people, especially when I was doing live recordings and still do some. About microphone placements, etc. I discovered a lot of that myself, but I figured, you know, people do this for a living. Let's, and there's some people I, I really respect who, who know a lot about that, and um, I did learn some stuff from them, but mostly it's, it's being self-taught. You mentioned that you are doing some narrating. You do a whole bunch of interesting things.
1: You're you're recording orchestras, you're doing uh, narration, just a a wide range of really high-end audio-related things. With your narration
0: work, I take it that Braille is really important to you then? Well, it would be had I not had neck surgery about 20 years ago and it took the feeling out of my Braille finger. And I was amazed that how hard it was to read braille with any other finger than that which i learned it just has been wired into my brain to do that and i have no ability to use it at this point so one says so how do you do it neil yeah yeah how do you do it neil <laughs> <laughs> when i was in graduate school i would read books on tape and believe me they weren't the quality of books on tape you get now they were they were well, I grew up in the South, and my readers were very slow, and they would I would have to read 300 pages, and I knew I wasn't going to get there, cause they, and they mispronounced every other word. I had a lovely recording not long ago of Lord of the Rings by the South Carolina chapter of Recording for the Blind. It's all about Bilbo Baggins and Frodo and Gandalf the Grey, and I didn't know Grey had three syllables. But... What I did when I was in graduate school, I would listen to a book on tape. I had to take so many notes that I finally figured out okay, I'll get another recorder and I'll dictate the notes into that as I go along. And I got very good at listening to either my screen reader or something I pre recorded with correct timing and reading that sort of like a translator does as you, rec- as you do the narration. So it's not braille, it is a little earpiece in my ear. Which nobody can hear but me. And I read it that way and speak it.
1: People do this. I don't know if you heard a while ago on FS Cast I interviewed an Australian journalist called Ness Campanella And uh, she works for the ABC, the public broadcaster in Australia, and she is a newscaster and she reads the news the same way. And I I wrote to the people at the ABC and I said, look, what I'd really like, as well as being able to interview her, which we did, is if you can give me a feed of a newscast as well as what she's hearing through her headphones. Uh You know, I want uh, the FS cast listeners to hear how this goes, and so they were able to do that. And so, what you hear on the FS cast is eloquence chattering away while she is reading that news bulletin, and it's quite a remarkable thing. I mean, that is live and it's real time, and it's it's high pressure.
0: Yeah, that is high pressure. Most of the stuff I read, I at least get to inter- to practice it or at least hear it a couple times, especially if it's something I wrote. Well, then that's obvious. But but she's doing stuff that's. Probably hasn't had time to even look at it. It's so off the feed. That is an art, and I'm sure there are people who do it a whole lot better than I do, but it's about the only thing I can do now without the use of Braille. The voice, the use of the voice is something that
1: interests me. Um, There is so much that can be conveyed by your tone of voice. Uh, You can make people feel at ease. You can convey tension. And you've spent a lot of time teaching people about this,
0: right? About how to use one's voice effectively. And my intent is to not have them sound like me or anybody they know, but to figure out what it is they want to convey. I remember once doing a workshop a long time ago, and I had 20 students in the workshop, and they were asked to come into a room individually. They had not met each other. This was the first day of the workshop. And I had them each record a sentence, same sentence, and then they went into the room as if they were entering the room for the first time which they were and the other person would come next person would come in and i would record that sentence and in the classroom i i randomized the recordings and played them back guess how many people out of 20 people could even recognize the sound of their own voice 3 which says a lot i mean how many people who see would not be able to recognize a picture of themselves and yet only three people recognize the sound of their own voice, which obviously says they really don't know what they're doing with it, let alone who they are. And it is so important to sound the way you want to sound. For example, I often use this sentence, if I said, and I'm going to say it in a monotone, I don't think I'd ever do it that way. You could say, I don't think I'd ever do it that way, which says, well, I would, but maybe other people or I don't think I would ever do it that way. I don't think I'd ever do it that I mean, there's so many different ways you can say that sentence. And I used to be paid to go to corporations and groups and sit and listen to their and record their staff meetings and play it back to them, knowing that I was going to erase the t- recording. And invariably, somebody would say, I didn't mean to say it that way. People stand in front of the mirror and look at themselves and straighten their tie and comb their hair, but they don't really think about the way they come across, but they do come across. Even when you're with a person who can see you, how you use your voice, to me, is so very important. I was once on a bus with a woman who was really upset about something, and I tried to intervene nicely, and she got really mad at me, and she started yelling at me and screaming at me, and... And I started talking to her in a very soft voice and very calm voice. And in not very long a time, her voice calmed down. It's hard to yell at somebody who isn't yelling back. So there's just a whole lot of stuff we don't know but can learn. How fast you speak, where do you intone your pitches? In fact, in some Oriental languages, there is a word that might be said three different ways. But the same word in three different intonations, which mean totally different things, some of which you wouldn't want to confuse with any of the others. So intonation, speed, volume, whether you you have a nasal voice, and some of that you can't help. I mean you do have your own instrument, which is your own instrument, but there are ways to work your mouth in ways more open throat, different things you can do with your lips and your tongue to really make it sound even better than it might. But it's it's all those little variable things like pitch and speed and intonation, which is really just amazingly influential as to what people think about who you are.
1: One thing I don't think you've mentioned in that excellent summary is that I don't think a lot of people are taught how to breathe properly.
0: No, they aren't. The way I came at that was I've been a singer all my life, and I was lucky enough to be a boy soprano, a boy alto, a boy tenor, and a, and a bass. And I had some really good teachers who taught me breath control. And that is something that I don't think a lot of people ever thought about how to breathe in a way that supports your voice. I have a friend who works in a situation where she talks almost all day long, and her voice. At one point, got really scratchy and sore, and we worked about how to speak with better breath control. She's a tour guide and she is in positions where she has to speak loudly. And she really began to realize that it, it, she could do it if you learned how to breathe correctly. That is another point. I'm glad you brought that up.
1: Also, breathing for relaxation is an incredible. Thing if you just take some time out and, um, and focus on the breath for a while, you feel better about the world.
0: When I used to have voice lessons, even if we only did vocal exercises and I used my breath correctly, I would float out of there, not because of anything I had sung, but because there was more oxygen in my brain. My there's there are a lot of people who think that the vocal diaphragm is really the seat of the emotions, or at least if not the seat, part of it. And because I had breathed correctly for an hour, without even thinking about, oh, I'm doing it to relax, I just felt so much better. And yes, a lot of mindfulness these days has to do with breathing and learning to breathe in and out and how you breathe and and pacing your breathing. A lot of people who do yoga classes and teaching yoga have have begun to put that into their series as well so it's a very important thing for relaxation you're right
1: and of course the you've also been involved in a lot of technological endeavors particularly with the trace research center and again i first became aware of them i think predominantly through some of the early work i was doing with main menu and we would talk to people like greg van der heiden who really is a genius in this space and i remember his predictions of How at some point there would be some common device that a blind person might use to control all of these inaccessible appliances that we were having trouble with even back then. And in essence, what ha- has happened is that that's gone mainstream and that sort of common device is our smartphone and everybody's doing that. But there's a lot of innovation, a lot of really deep thinking that was going
0: on at the Trace Research Center when you were involved. He was my boss for 13 years and I learned more about technology than I thought I'd ever know. Being a musician and a recording engineer, who would have thought? When I first went to Trace, we were working a lot with blindness. How do you make documents accessible to people who are blind. And occasionally somebody would say, well, so why don't you work as much with people with other disabilities? Which we did, but in a different way. And Dr. van der answer would be, if you're in a wheelchair, you obviously have your own situations that you need to deal with, but you can see the page. You might have to use a mouth stick to turn it, or it may take a long time to get it flipped over, but you can see the page. If you're deaf... You have all your particular issues, but you can see the page, or in in computer age, you can see the screen. If you're blind and you can't see what's on the screen, that's a problem. You may be able to get from one place to another, but having the information given to you in a way that you can understand it is a lot harder than having a person who's deaf sitting and being able to look at the screen, etc. So, my first interaction with him was back in I think nineteen seventy one He tried to get me to work there, and I was doing something else but we'd we'd get together and listen to old synthesizers and Oh, did they sound awful i when am i when I do my podcast, I'm going to do a show on ancient synthesizers, and how far we've come in terms of speech now therein lies a real issue because when we started. It was, I mean, it was just awful they would speak, in, and I can't even do it. I have a friend who does a wonderful job of being a speech synthesizer, but I'm not her. But it would mispronounce so many things. My wife and I used to laugh because I'd write down a grocery list, and I would we were going to go buy some curtains, and it would say, Curtains. And so we'd start, okay, we'd, we'd start talking like the synthesizer. Let's go buy some Curtains today. <laughs> but we went from there to... One of the things that I did when I first went to trace was I was a part of a committee called International Document Design. And we started putting tags in documents. If you had a text file back then, you didn't know how to get from one paragraph to another. You just sort of read from top to bottom. And chances are there were lots of carriage returns and it all wrapped all over the place anyway. So we thought, okay, what if we said, let's put some like a dollar P in front of each paragraph, and a dollar C for something that was centered, and a dollar T for title. And then you could use your screen reader to change the dictionary to have dollar P pronounced next paragraph, and dollar H pronounced next heading. And so we would mark up text documents like that. And then the web came along, or was coming along, and people said I know you've been doing this. Can we use this as the first basis for HTML? And so that's basically how HTML got off the ground, is the work that we were doing on text markup. And of course, it's gone way beyond that. We also did a lot of work on developing kiosks and how do you deal with touchscreens? And it makes me really appreciate what Apple has done and TalkBack and other things have done. When we developed our first touchscreen prototype, you could touch the screen and you could feel around it and it wouldn't do anything but speak whatever your finger was on and you then pressed a button down at the bottom of the screen if you wanted to react with that but it took a while for people to remember where things were positioned on the screen they had to go actually go up to the top right hand corner to touch x button and go down to the middle of the screen to touch y button etc etc we thought well that's okay but that takes a long time So we started doing things like, let's have this special blind mode, which of course was yet another thing on top of the regular mode, where everything would be on the left side of the screen, and you had a border of the screen, you could run your finger up and down, and and things would be in alphabetical order. So if you knew you wanted campgrounds, and you were down at the D's already, you knew you should go up, and you got to campground, and you went down to the bottom and pressed the select page, and now you were in the campground menu. Well, then Apple came along for gosh sakes and said, what about swiping? And oh my goodness, everything changed because for people who don't know, the iPhone and TalkBack on Android, I can find things on the screen by just touching them. If I know where they are, I can go put my finger on them or I can just start moving my finger from left to right or right to left And it goes to the next item, the next item, the next item. And it doesn't matter where my finger is or where things are on the screen. It just gets there in terms of your swiping. And then you double tap to go to it. And that was an amazing leap forward. But yeah, working at Trace, we were sort of in the forefront of, of lots of things that have come to pass. And you mentioned things being done by third parties now. There was a time when we were working That people just really complained about, why don't third parties do this? Why is it that that somebody has to do a a blindness device, like a Victor Reader Stream, or a a Bookport, or any of those other things that can be used by people who are blind, but you pay a lot more for them because they're not nearly as many of them produced. And slowly, third parties like Apple and Google, and now I do not want to say her name because if I say, Alexa. She's going to Yeah, oh, yes, you'll set the world
1: off, yes. <laughs> oh, she didn't do a
0: thing. She's sleeping. And all of a sudden, people started saying, but these aren't developed the way the blindness apps were. It's harder to use. It did, I think, take a while for people to say, okay, if I want third parties to develop things for me and, and have off-the-shelf software, I have to recognize that not everybody thinks like a person who's blind. And there will be differences. One of the biggest problems we had at Trace was cross-disability solutions. It used to be so hard because people of one disability would say, no, 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 you can't do it that way, I can't use it. No, it has to be X because that's what I'm used to. Well, no, it won't work for other disabilities if we do. That was really a hard thing to, to get across. But that's what we spent a lot of time doing. We developed voting machines. We actually developed the postal kiosk that's in a lot of post offices today. And all from that first attempt at at using a touchscreen. Who would have thought, even as much as 10 years ago, that a blind person could put their finger on a touchscreen and it would say something? I mean, think of it. That's a far cry from push buttons to do things or not having any speech at all. And that not only would it say something, but you could react with it. Good Lord, have we come a long way. You were talking about those initial attempts to provide
1: formatting information in documents. And I didn't realize that Trace was doing that because that's the nomenclature, the, 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 the methodology that BrailleEdit adopted, of course, from raised dot computing. And that was the first time that I was really able to produce a beautifully formatted document. And it was kind of geeky and kludgy and in things, but man, if you remembered those dollar commands, you could produce a really nice-looking document and send it out to the dot matrix printer.
0: Command-centered um, word processors, even before Braille edit I had one. I, it didn't speak, but you did the same thing. You put in those dollar P, dollar C, whatever. My first synthesizer came from raised dot computing. And uh, man, I remember when I brought it home, and I thought the world just opened up because even with computers before speech, I would write something and I'd have to have my wife edit it. And just like anybody who was blind using a sighted reader, if you wanted to correct something, how would you know how to tell the person, I think it was up in the previous paragraph or maybe it was on a different line. I mean, Now I could not only write, but I could go edit what I wrote. And all of a sudden, the world just opened up. It was amazing, no matter how horribly it sounded with all those mispronounced words. And when I think how much better that's gotten, I mean, speech synthesizers have come a long way, from things that sounded horrible, from things like eloquence, which is what a lot of people use, which is still a, a synthesized speech, to actually people speaking into a microphone, not words, but phonemes and parts of speech and whatever that get alighted together to make really almost human sounding speech. And there are those of us who, because we have so much to read, got to the point of speeding up things. And I, I I started that actually when I was, as I said, when I was using those readers that were just way slow. I would put my finger in the take up reel and just sort of spin it faster. Well it's a lot easier to now today. Because not only are they sounding better, but they really can be jacked up in terms of speed and you can really cover a lot of stuff. In my role in
1: product management in various capacities over the years, I've been approached by very well-intentioned people who think they have the next big thing for blind people. And the only trouble is that they haven't really discussed it with a blind person before they've taken it some considerable way. And I'm sure you will have seen this during your time at Trace. And this comes back really to your comment about third-party developers, or should we say mainstream developers, involvement now in blindness products and some dissatisfaction that's emerging over the quality of some of the things we're getting. My concern about this is that accessibility doesn't equate to productivity necessarily. Something can be 100% accessible and just really inefficient to use, and I'm concerned we are losing productivity to some extent.
0: That's a very interesting point, and I think you're right. Right. And part of it does stem from what I said, and you have just echoed, the fact that if I'm a owner of a company that makes a product, and most of my users are sighted, and most of them can see more than one thing at a time, I'm going to develop for them. And if even if I want to make it accessible, I have got to make sure that it is foremost accessible to the bulk of my audience who can see. people. Get really upset about the fact that, that a lot of companies don't think about accessibility till the end, and that's true. But even if you do, you have to develop first for the population who uses it. And if they're a sighted person and can see the screen, you interact with it differently. And when you start developing the accessibility functions, they may or may not be to your liking. The other problem is, of course, that because these are really big companies, you don't have the chance you used to have when you were working with blindness products to actually either beta test, go talk to the developer. I remember when I first had my Apple II, Larry Scutcon was developing something called ProTerm and ProWords. And I could send him an email and I'd say, Larry, would you think about adding this? And he'd say, Oh, that's a good idea. Oh, try doing that now with Apple not that they don't care about accessibility, but you can't talk to the head of Apple like I could the head of pro term or pro words, so there's that distance too, and the as you said, the difference in the way you interface it as a person who's blind versus a person who sees and i That's a very interesting point. Talk more about how you think about that and and what how you think it has come to pass I
1: think. One of the problems we face is that because there is this huge rate of unemployment in our community, and because there are few Braille readers, I think what has happened is that people may not value productivity as much. As long as people get the job done, if it takes a few swipes and double taps and and things like that, uh, if... You open an email message and it blurts out a lot of header information that you can't disable. Few people seem particularly bothered by that. And my concern is that, that that that's quicksand because if we're not able to be as productive as we can possibly be, then those jobs are never going to come because we don't have the tools to be truly productive and, and say to an employer, look, we can be really efficient.
0: And of course, as soon as you become productive on a piece of equipment or an application which has taken you a long time to learn, then there comes the update, and you're off in la-la land again. Yeah, and those updates can often seriously
1: break things. This is one of the problems we have with Apple stuff big time, is that whenever an iOS update has come out in the last few years, a big major upgrade, a major number upgrade, there have been very significant problems. Uh, Some of them have broken Braille to the point that it's unusable. Sometimes you haven't been able to answer or hang up a call. And if you're in a professional situation and you need to take calls on the job, that's absolutely critical. And we are expected to somehow sort of sit back and be grateful when if those problems actually affected the majority sighted audience, It would be in the front page of the newspapers until it was addressed, and people would be complaining that they can't get their job done. Somehow we just sort of have to sit at the back of the virtual technology bus and be grateful for what we have.
0: And the sighted world doth complain, and because many people do, it gets fixed. But again, we're sort of low on the totem pole in terms of numbers. But I want to go to something else you brought up, and it relates to Braille, when you said that very few people these days read Braille. That's a really big issue to me because what we have are people who have learned the language orally but know not how to write it because they haven't grown up reading or writing Braille and learning how to make the letters and stopping to spell words and stopping to say, oh, this is the part of speech that does X, Y, and Z. I get emails all the time from people I talk with who sound very intelligent, but their emails are just atrocious because they do not know how to write. Now, I suppose one could, if the teacher made one, use the speech synthesizer in the learning process to go spell words and read letter by letter, but people aren't going to do that if they can be quicker in reading two or three or five or 700 words a minute. So what happens to a society of people who are blind, who are unemployed, but who, for all intents and purposes, and I mean no disrespect to this, illiterate because of the language they do not know?
1: Yeah, we, we shy away from saying that illiterate word for fear of offending people. But if you can't write something down and read something back, not having a computer read it back, but your brain actually decoding some symbol of what you've what you've put down then that's not true literacy uh, i also wonder whether people fully understand how badly they come across uh, and and sure i understand that maybe some of the problem is lack of braille instruction there was a period there hopefully it's better now but there was a period there where uh, itinerant teachers uh, were were thin on the ground and we pretty selective about who they taught Braille to and all those things. So some people have been victims of the system. But these days we do have spell checkers. And there are ways to to do some basic proofing of your email, even if you're using speech. And I just wonder whether people understand how, how it affects people's perceptions of them when they send out such badly constructed
0: email. Yeah, I don't know. Or do they have any choice? Don't we all have the choice to
1: press F7 and check our spelling or whatever the whatever the key is in our particular app
0: of choice we do have a choice of spell checking but if you don't know the language you could have something happen that happened to me although for, for a different reason we were writing up christmas carol words a number of years ago to sing at our christmas carol party and i checked the speller and things were fine and we were singing the christmas carol Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And we all were singing along in four-part harmony until we got to the point where, instead of saying, Risen with Healing in His Wings, the text read, Risen with Helium in His Wings. And I thought, okay, that's that's one way to do it. But that you see that, who would have come across that if they really didn't know the word? But yeah, you can do some strange things with spell checkers. But you're right. I don't know whether people know how they come across. And there's a there's another facet to this, which is controversial, yes. But there are people who think that because people haven't learned a language, that that affects the plasticity of their brain. Because if you learn a language, for example, when I was in school, We used a slate and stylus. People are going to say, what the heck is a slate and stylus? You had to write something and punch holes down through the paper and they came out on the bottom side of the page, which of course meant that you had to turn the page over to read it, which of course meant that you had to learn two alphabets, one to write, which was upside down, and one to read, which was the other way. That sort of, and and learning the parts of speech and learning spelling, those sorts of things work the mind in ways that give people certain kinds of abilities, perhaps, that we don't even think about if we don't have that. And I don't, I don't know how much to put credence in that, but it is a thought that learning a language, especially learning it bimodally, because if you learn by speech synthesizer, it is like learning to hear somebody talk. If you learn braille, you are learning tactily as well as audibly. Now, that's got to do something to help your brain plasticity do things that you may not be able to do if you hadn't done that. So how much does that affect the person who doesn't write and how much does that affect how they come across or how they even know about how they come across?
1: I've read a lot about neuroplasticity lately. It's um, a fascinating subject. In the last five or six years, I've read a lot about the brain and and the mind and the body in general. And it's encouraging to me to know that the latest research indicates that it doesn't really matter what age you're at. People used to think when you were a kid, if you didn't do all these things then, then your brain was kind of stuck in this pattern for the rest of your life. But it's never too late to do things that encourages neuroplasticity in your brain.
0: Well, I'm a good example of that in that I am actually losing hearing in my left ear. Not very good for a recording engineer, a person who needs his hearing to get around, and a musician, eh? Not only am I losing hearing, but the pitch is changing. So I hear very few low frequencies in that ear now, and the sound of musical notes are one pitch one step higher in that ear than they are in the other ear. Now how, I ask you, is a person supposed to play music? And how is a person supposed to find his way around if things don't even sound like they are where they're supposed to be. And what's interesting, this has gone on for several years, and what's interesting is the brain has said, okay, little by little, Neil, I'm going to help you out. If you wear headphones and you isolate each ear, yes, you're going to hear one pitch in one ear and one in the other, and it's going to sound like, well, it's not going to sound good. But if you take your headphones off, I know that you don't hear the same pitch in your left ear that you do with your right ear, but I'm going to trick you into thinking you do. The brain has remapped itself to sound good. Same thing with lower frequencies. My left ear has lost a lot of lower frequencies. So if I'm standing by my refrigerator and it's on my left, it is mostly low frequencies. But in the beginning, I heard the refrigerator on my right because the left ear couldn't hear the low frequencies. I heard the reflection of the low frequencies in my right ear. So the brain said over the past years, well, we can deal with that too, Neil. We can remap things and make you hear those sounds in your left ear as well. And by gosh, it did. So, no, we're not too late to learn that and to have that happen. That is an amazing. It just, neuroplasticity is just, well, what can I say? I mean, where would I be if I couldn't do music and couldn't do, and I'm back to doing everything the way I, had before. So what can I say except the brain is an amazing thing?
1: Yeah, it it really is. I wonder if if I can just bridge with you the question of this the, the digital divide um, that I see emerging. And it's not just an economic thing, although I wouldn't want to underplay the economics of um, blindness technology, which does exclude a lot of people. Uh, and, and there's some public policy uh, issues that come up there. But I'm more interested in the fact that um, I've become conscious, particularly of the last few months on our blind sight community that we have, that there are a lot of people who have bought iPhones, especially because they have... They understand intellectually the life-changing nature of this technology, but they struggle with it. They don't enjoy using it. They don't particularly find it intuitive, you know, and a lot of not just younger people, but I think it's typically younger people don't understand how excluded and troublesome a, a lot of people are feeling in you know, about this, uh, about about touchscreen technology and mainstream technology. Um, to give you an example, I'm astounded when I look at the stats, when, when we look at the blind side, we can see where people are listening from around the world. We can't identify individuals, of course. We can see uh, wh- where, where people are listening from by country, and we can also see what people listen with. And I think if you combine all the different smartphone options, they are probably a majority, but by far the single most used player is the Victor Reader Stream still, and that surprises me because after all this time, iPhone has been accessible for nine years now. Still, a lot of blind people feel that they're better off with one of these specialized blindness devices. And when I ask them why, sometimes it's because it has physical buttons. Uh, sometimes they just like something separate to carry around so their battery doesn't drain. But these, you know, the, the, the iPhone is a convergence device. Um, it does all these things. And yet a lot of blind people still
0: don't feel they can use it as their primary device you could probably have as many answers for that as there are people who have them maybe part of it with some people has to do with spatial awareness because i know people who find it really hard to swipe on the iphone or to to go to the top or the bottom left corner or the whatever and these are the same kind of people who when i was working with them on computers and you would say press control q and it would take them 10 seconds or even 15 or 20 seconds to find control Q on their keyboard. I'm going to take this in a different tangent, in a sense, because I think part of the problem in the blindness community often is how people are raised, how their parents either help or hinder them, get a sense of who they are and how far they can go. I know story after story after story of people who have been abused, discriminated against, I know a story of a woman who lived in a dog cage for weeks on end because her parents didn't think she should be alive. They poured boiling water on her. They did. And of course, that's the extreme. But if you have parents who don't give you the incentive to do something, how much does that affect your ability to think about new things? And I think that's a lot of it. But you're right, getting down to the specific devices, people have buttons they can press. They know when they press the button on the Victor Stream, it's going to do what they want to do. They know also that if they're reading a long documentary on, a, on the iPhone or something, and they put their finger in the wrong place, all of a sudden it might stop reading because they've just told the phone to stop reading or to get off, to get out of the app or something. And they have no clue how to get back into it it's that whole connection between physical space i think and getting in your mind the operation of the of the device i remember when i was doing even back in the beginning pro term and pro words with larry skudkin and other things they were all different designs it wasn't like today when mostly in in apple products and in and windows Applications have a file menu. they have certain things that are similar. Back then, things were very different. Each application, you almost had to get your mind around what the person who wrote the app was thinking and how they thought. I think there are a lot of people who don't have experience with that and who really get flummoxed if they're, they I guess that's a word when it comes to spatial awareness of, of dealing with their their phones. I don't know that that's all. I'm sure that's not all of it. I'm sure there are other reasons. But a lot of people who I work with are older and they're used to their device, which works. There is a security in a sense that you're not going to screw up something. And I think that's another part of the issue. I learned at Trace to be totally unafraid of what I did to my computer because I knew how to fix it. If you don't know how to get back to where you were in an app, you don't really like being there because you are on the knife edge. If you're in a place and you know that if you make a mistake, you're going to be lost, and how do you get back? That's a scary thing. That's a scary place to be.
1: On the blind side community, I discussed some of these blindness-specific players and described them as a crutch. I think I got into a bit of trouble for that. But it comes back to this neuroplasticity thing. If you've invested in an iPhone and you can do absolutely everything... On the iPhone, that you can with a blindness specific play, you know, you can play. If you're in the United States, you can play your barred books, you can listen to internet radio, you can listen to podcasts better, in fact, because you can get podcast apps that will skip chapters, such as in the way that we construct this podcast. So you can navigate by sections in the podcast. Doesn't it come back to this neuroplasticity thing? If you don't give up the old ways and learn, you know, have your brain adapt to the new then you'll never really come to terms with them.
0: I think that's true, but I also think that it is hard for people to find the keys to how to be in tune with their new device. I know a number of people who probably would if you said, would you like to take a course on how to use your iPhone really effectively? They would take it, because they really aren't comfortable with the fact that they don't know how to use it. And once one gets comfortable, yes, I think then you need to work with it to have the brain plasticity sort of say, okay, this is this is your comfort zone now. But I think a lot of it is a couple things. I think when I was growing up, I'm sounding like my father now. When I was young, if I wanted to know how something worked, I had to go figure it out. I had to read a manual. I had to talk to people. I think there's also a thing now Not necessarily just in the blindness community, but I notice it more there. Lots of people I don't think, and I'm going to get some flack for this, and obviously I'm not talking about everybody, but I think there are people who don't have the drive to go figure things out on their own. And because of that, and even if they do, where do you find the answers? Google is my friend. YouTube is my friend. I, If I don't know something, I go look. But if, if I don't do that, and if I don't know how to use something... And if I'm afraid to try to figure it out, because what if I'm going to break? I going to? I might break my iPhone. I mean, there's that fear. How do you get beyond that to the point where you can do it enough to have brain plasticity take over? So you left the
1: Trace Research Center, I guess what, to pursue what you really love. Is that basically the size of it? You kind of took the big plunge and um, did what you really love full time.
0: I left Trace in 2006, I think. and did more of what I wanted to do. I, um, I got much more back into recording. I also got much more into technology consulting on a much broader scale. And it was stuff that I wanted to do and not stuff that just Trace happened to be doing. I mean, I have worked with all kinds of corporations and organizations and individuals and groups to make Various things to help make various things accessible, not just to people who are blind, primarily, but also to people with other disabilities. That was, and and I, and I couldn't have done that had I not worked for Trace and built up, up a knowledge base of people who knew me and knew my work, so I could then go out and, and say, here I am. What do you need? And 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 people came calling, and um, I did have more time to record. I then began teaching, a a course at a local college here on death and dying. Well, actually, it was called Life Legacies. We The students worked with people who were in hospice, and they told the people's life stories, and the students told their life stories. And along the way, we ran into people who were homeless and dying, or in prison and dying, and how does that work? And we just developed this amazing course that was all over the place in terms of let's look at stigma, let's look at how people are treated in prisons or in nursing homes or and so that was part of my what I was doing as well. And plus I wanted to travel more. So and I wanted to go in the woods more and record sounds and record more concerts. And so yeah, you're right. I I I left because I wanted to just do... My, my parents would probably think I'm the most irresponsible person in the world because I've done so many wonderful things in my life, whereas my dad worked in the same place for most of his life. But man, life can be fun if you think about it as a puzzle. I'm a very curious fella. I like to learn about new things. And I like to see if I can... While I'm learning, teach people. And I think that's one of the things that happened in our class. I think I learned as much from my students as I taught them. I mean, they were people from all walks of life, people who had been abused, people who lived in poverty, people who were totally unable to grasp the fact that that they weren't correct in in everything they said. And it's just, for me, life is just a whole lot of fun. And I get get up every morning and I think, I wonder what I'm going to learn today.
1: There is nothing worse than getting up in the morning, dreading whatever job you have to go to, right? And so there are challenges in living the dream, but um, boy, it, it it it's wonderful to be able to get up in the morning with a spring in your step and, and also knowing that what might happen today could be just completely different from all that occupied you yesterday.
0: And sometimes life throws you a curve and you think, wow, I never thought about that. And sometimes you think, good Lord, how do I deal with that? I'm sure I'm not like that every morning. My wife probably will tell you that some mornings I get up and I might be a little grouchy. But every day is is a fresh day and and good things can happen and if bad things happen you figure out how to deal with them. But yeah, that's a, that's a good feeling. I often say to people
1: that waking up in the morning and being blessed with another new day is kind of like pressing control with n in your word processor. You know, you've got a blank document and it's up to you what you write on that day.
0: Yep. You are right about that. Control N.
1: I've got to pursue this. What got you interested in the subject of death and dying? Because it's something that the Western world seems to like to ignore most of the time. And I mean, we, we know for sure we're all going to die, right? And yet it's something we don't often talk about.
0: To really answer that question, I need to tell you a very poignant story. One of the stories I have on my website is about trips that my grandfather and I used to take to the apple orchard when I was about 11 or 12. He showed me one day a special tree, a tree that he'd climbed when he was a boy. He told me it was his very favorite tree and that his grandfather had shown him this tree and that it had been in that orchard ever since. When I got to the tree, I climbed the tree and I kept saying, Grandfather, how high did you go? Where did you sit? But there was no answer. Finally, I reached a place that really seemed comfortable to me, and as I sat there and leaned my head against the trunk, I realized that the part I was leaning my head against had become really worn, and the part where I was sitting on, also, and I thought, I bet this is where my grandfather sat. And I said, Grandfather, is this where you were? But there was no answer. Finally, I climbed down from the tree and went home to Grandfather's house, and there he was sitting on the front porch. And I said, Grandfather, where did you go? He said, Oh, I knew you could find your way back. I just figured you might spend all day in that tree. In the fall, my mother told me one night that my grandfather had gone away. I said, Where did he go? And finally, she said, He died. I didn't know what that meant at the time, so I thought maybe he would be back at his tree. And I went down to the tree, and there was nobody there. It was pretty cold that winter, and I didn't go out, but in the spring, I went back down to the tree, and I knew somehow that he wouldn't be there, but I knew I needed to climb and find the place he sat. And so I climbed, and I reached the same place I had reached a few months before. I felt the rough bark, but where his head had leaned against the tree, it was very smooth, and I leaned my head in the very same spot. Grandfather, I called, but I knew he wouldn't be there. I don't know when the tears came. But somehow I knew, this special tree was now all mine. Had his grandfather given it to him, only to slip away, like my grandfather did, from me and from life itself? And I didn't know it then, but I think I understood later that I needed to talk about death. I needed to help people talk about death. I needed to work with people who were dying. I needed to hear their stories. I needed to ask them to tell their stories on tape to me so I could share them with their families. How many times have I heard somebody say, I don't remember what my mother's voice sounded like. We have all kinds of pictures, but often we don't bother to record the stories. And so when a friend of mine started thinking about teaching a class, I said, let's do it. And that's what I've been doing for the last 12 years.
1: There's just so much that we've talked about, and I really appreciate not only your time, but also the contribution that you've made to our community. And you're always very generous with your time and your knowledge. And I know many of us have appreciated that over the years. So it's been great to sit down with you and uh, share some discussion. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I know you're working on your own. And so when you're ready for that, we may bring you back briefly to... uh, to describe your podcast when it's ready to launch.
0: It's good to be here, and I'll be happy to come back anytime. Thanks, Jonathan, for all the stuff you do, for all of us who need stuff that we need to know about, and you're a great person for helping us learn things about that stuff. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.